Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with certified sex therapist, Martha Kelpie. Her private practice in Madison, Wisconsin, specializes in complex relational therapy, sex issues, and family structures. She is the founding director of the Institute for Relational Intimacy and author of the new book, Polyamory, a clinical toolkit for therapists and their clients. This episode is going to focus on what you need to know if you're thinking about opening up your relationship. We'll be discussing the conversations you need to have beforehand, the kind of things that should go into an open relationship agreement, as well as how to troubleshoot common problems or disagreements that might arise. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Martha, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, and I'm looking forward to talking all about open relationships with you. Let's do it. So to get started, I always like to ask my guests about their professional journey. So what got you into the world of sex and relationship therapy in the first place? (laughs) It's a long and convoluted path. It is for all of us. Yeah, it is. This is my third career. I don't know, somebody probably somewhere just started out by being a sex therapist, but it wasn't me. My first career was as a midwife. My second career, glassblower and multimedia artist and third career uh, therapist. And at the time that I went to graduate school to become a therapist, it had been on my list of possible professional paths for my whole life. And it just, its number was up. You know, it was just like, okay, now it's time to go to graduate school and actually do this thing. And I knew for sure that I wanted to be a sex therapist from the beginning. So the trajectory has been super quick since that decision, because I knew exactly what I wanted to do and where I was going from having really a lifelong career in sexual health, just Mm -hmm. from the standpoint of a healthcare career first thing. Yeah. So if you're looking for a glass blowing midwife sex therapist, you check all the boxes. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's always fascinating to hear about the, you know, sort of unique journey that everyone takes. And, you know, I'm like you and a lot of my guests are like you and that this wasn't what they grew up thinking they were going to do their entire life and somehow ended up here. And, you know, we're very happy with, with that decision in the end. So thanks for sharing your story. Let's talk for a little bit about your new book, which is titled Polyamory, a clinical toolkit for therapists and their clients. So how did you first become interested in the topic of consensual non-monogamy and why did you decide to write a whole book about it? (laughs) And it is a whole book. It has 492 pages. I had no idea that I had that much to say about polyamory. (laughs) Turns out there are a lot. There's a lot to say. Turns out there, yeah, those little questions, they sound like little questions. It takes a while to actually answer them. I got interested in this topic because as a student, a therapy student, I was learning about relationship therapies and asking questions about non-monogamies because my brother has always been in open relationships. And so, and I'm queer and I know lots of people in open relationships, these overlapping communities. And Yet I seemed to be hearing from my teachers and from leaders in the field that polyamory and other non-monogamies really don't work for the long haul or the intimacy isn't real or whatever. And it just didn't compute. Like to me, it didn't make sense what I was learning. It didn't match up with what I had seen in the real world. And so I did a research study about it for my master's degree and just try to gather a little bit of actual data. There wasn't so much at that time about it. And I wanted to know things like why people choose it and how long their relationships last and how many partners they have and what happens to the intimacy when you add another partner. And what I discovered was all in alignment with what I'd seen in real life. And so I just realized therapists need to know this stuff. You know, it's it's not going to be useful to get all your information from the sort of therapy leaders byline about attachment issues and security and there's not it's not possible to have true intimacy that's just not 
accurate at all. So I certainly started working with this population because I was able to, and I just was. And so that all these people in open relationships found their way to me. And then my career, as you know, very quickly took a turn towards training therapists. And I train therapists internationally now to work with a broad variety of sex issues, including this one, because somebody has to teach you. You know, if you have never actually seen working polyamorous relationships, which, you know, that's an understandable place for a therapist to be because people are having relationship problems when they come into our office. It's not shocking that therapists see mostly a demographic that's not so delighted. So if you've never seen that, I think it's really important that there are voices saying, wait a minute, I have seen it. This is what it looks like. This is how it works. This is what's possible. And this is how you would help somebody get there. Yeah. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I can relate to a lot of what you're saying about the deficits in training because I spent five years working on my PhD in social psychology, specializing in studying relationships. And I'm not sure that consensual non-monogamy came up in the entire time I was in that program. And, you know, most of the theories that have been developed around relationships are all based on this presumption that everyone is or wants to be monogamous. You know, so for example, a lot of the theories of relationship commitment are premised on the idea that stronger commitment to a relationship is based on this perception that anyone you could be with other than your partner is unappealing, right? And so it's sort of built around this idea that if you find other people attractive or you want to have relationships with other people, that therefore you can't be committed to someone. And so something I've done in my work since leaving graduate school is focus more on consensual non-monogamy and how we can expand some of our theories to help us better understand that, you know, commitment and love and all of these things, they work in different ways in consensually non-monogamous relationships and they can work, but we need to expand our theories to accommodate them. And I also really appreciate what you said about a lot of therapists just sort of thinking that polyamory and open relationships can't work because they only ever see people in non-monogamous relationships who are distressed. And so that sort of feeds into that perception that, well, this is related to problems. And we also know that for the people for whom it works well, they're not going to therapists and they're often very secretive about it, right? So the sample size is just really small. And, you know, it's so interesting that when people see people in monogamous relationships break up, their immediate conclusion isn't like, oh, well, monogamy doesn't work. <laughs> but when they see people in open relationships break up, they're like, well, clearly there's something wrong there. So I want to ask you, based on the research you've done and also your work as a therapist, you know, let's dispel this myth before we move on. So can open relationships work? I get asked this question all the time. And what is your response to that? Absolutely, they can. As a therapist, if the examples I had of monogamy were only what I see in my therapy room, I would tell you no relationship works. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, clearly it can work. I've seen lots of long-term polyamorous relationships, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about what makes them work. And when something's not working, why is it not working? What is the part that's not working? Because we can't go on the cultural norm that it's not working because it's open. I mean, this is the very definition of a marginalized population, yeah. something that everybody thinks that the problem is itself. And the problem is not itself. But then that brings up the question of if polyamory is not the problem, when it's not working, what is the problem? And I think that's where I did most of my thinking in order to really get proficient at helping effectively with distressing situations and open relationships and then eventually writing a whole book about it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about why monogamy isn't for everyone. Now, we know that most people who are in relationships are monogamous. And most single people who are looking for relationships say they're looking for monogamy, but we know that monogamy doesn't work out for everyone who tries it. And a lot of people are curious about the idea of being in some type of sexually open relationship. So for example, in my own research on sexual fantasies, I actually find that most people who are in monogamous relationships say they fantasized about some type of consensual non-monogamy before. 
Also in nationally representative studies in the United States and Canada, we find that about one in five people say that they've been in a sexually open relationship at some point. And other studies suggest that about one in 20 people are currently in one of these relationships. So why doesn't monogamy work for everyone? And why are so many people drawn to alternative relationship structures? Those are two quite separate questions, I think. So I'm going to say something on the provocative side, perhaps. Is the choice really between monogamy and polyamory? Or is the choice between infidelity and polyamory? So when you say most people are monogamous, I already am curious to know what exactly you mean by that. Because as far as I can tell, a lot of people who are in monogamous relationships and would say that they identify as monogamous, in fact, participate in infidelity, which is not monogamy. Like (laughs) consensual monogamy does not involve infidelity. And consensual polyamory does not involve infidelity. So, you know, would you rather be in a monogamous relationship where the only option when you develop a crush on a coworker is to either switch partners or cheat? Or would you rather be in a relationship where you have a frank conversation about what you want, even if it's conflictual and difficult? So to me, that's what the choice is between. Mm-hmm. And that is provocative. I'm sure people will have <laughs> thoughts on that. But I think it's an interesting way of of thinking about this. And, and you know, what you say about monogamy and infidelity, it's so true. You know, there is a lot of infidelity in monogamous relationships. People who say, I'm monogamous, I'm exclusive, often will do things that don't fall within their relationship agreement. Now, it really depends on how you define infidelity in a monogamous relationship. And if you look at the research, you'll find rates of infidelity that range anywhere from, you know, single digit percentage points to up to 80%, depending on what the definition is, right? So, but on average, you know, most people tend to think about infidelity as, you know, having sexual intercourse with someone other than your exclusive partner. And when you define infidelity in those very narrow terms for heterosexual married couples. It's between one in four and one in five people who admit to committing that form of infidelity at some point. But if you expand the definition, if you look at dating relationships, the numbers are much higher. So let me ask the other part of that question. Why are alternative relationship structures, why is consensual non-monogamy appealing to so many people? I know you hinted at that idea that you know, you then have more options for what you can do if you develop an attraction to someone else. But are there other things that draw people to consensual non-monogamy beyond that? I bet there are a million things that draw people. And when I asked about it in my research, I gave people, I don't know, 15 different choices or something that I brainstormed up, you know, reasons why a person might choose. But the, the most common response was, it's just the way I am. Mm-hmm. And so for an awful lot of people, it's an identity. It's an aspect of how they see themselves, or perhaps they've always imagined themselves in a relationship with more than one person. I know somebody who says he always imagined himself as having a wife and a mistress. That's somebody who did, just wasn't given the language for what an open relationship was and constructed it the only way that made sense culturally. But for a lot of people, they just don't see themselves with one person forever. And You know, the interesting monogamy is such an interesting construct because it goes together with infidelity and it also goes together with serial monogamy. Like the idea that if there are two, then you have to choose between. And not only is that limiting in terms of what you can do while falling within your relationship agreements, it is also extremely limiting in terms of why you would stay in a relationship. So I think one really strong reason to choose polyamory is if you have a relationship that isn't a perfect fit in every single way, I mean, that describes what like most relationships, if not all of them, right? Doesn't not every single one of your needs is met in your marriage, but lots of them are. You're a super strong functioning couple and why would you leave? So, you know, once you're in the realm of an open relationship, you're in the realm of, indeed, why would you leave? Like, you'd have to have an actual reason to leave. It's not just that you developed a crush on somebody else and now you have to choose. 
Right. But it's complicated, right? Like it, once you're in that realm, you're in the realm of having to make some big decisions and some some disclosures that might be uncomfortable. And that kind of moves us towards like, what does it take to actually do this well? And a strong core <laughs> is the first part of my answer to that. You have yeah. to be able to get in touch with yourself and have some idea what you do think and feel and want and prefer. It takes some grit to come to terms with yourself. Yeah. But coming to terms with yourself, I think, is the first part. Yeah, and that ties very nicely into my next question for you. But before I launch into that, I wanted to just go back to something you said, which I think is an interesting thing to think about, which is, is polyamory consensual non-monogamy being in an open relationship? Is this a choice, a decision that people make? Or is it an orientation? You know, some people talk about this as a relationship orientation, kind of in the same way that you talk about a sexual orientation, that there's some sort of inborn characteristic of some people that predisposes them to non-monogamy. And there is some research that supports this idea. For example, Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton has conducted some neuroscience research where she looks at the brains of men who identify as monogamous versus consensually non-monogamous and finds that there are differences in the ways that their brains process sexual cues, which could point to some genetic or biological explanation for why some people might be more into consensual non-monogamy than others. But this is such a new and growing area of research that, you know, there's not a lot that we can say concretely, but I think it's an interesting point to explore going forward is, you know, how do we think about this? Is it a choice or is it an orientation? I would say it's both. Yeah. And I would say that for some people, it's a behavioral choice. It's a thing that they choose to do or they fell into this once but they don't see it as an aspect of their identity. And then for other people, they do see it as an aspect of their identity, inborn or not, separate question, I guess. But if somebody sees it as a, an aspect of who they are, then I would call that an identity. Yeah. So let's go back to what you were saying about, you know, sort of the, the beginning, the first step. <laughs> so if you're thinking about opening up a relationship, let's say you've only ever been monogamous before, you're interested in exploring some type of consensual non-monogamy, whether that's polyamory and open relationships, swinging, cuckolding or something else. Where do you start to ensure that you get off on the right foot and make sure that this is the right path for you? <laughs> You ask some very interesting and complex questions <laughs> that have different answers for the front end and the back. Um, <laughs> you're not going to know how it unfolds until it unfolds. And there are some skills that you develop along the way of life in general, not just in open relationships. So, you know, sometimes people ask me, like, is there a skill set that I should have in place before I start? And I think, well, in the ideal world, sure. But most of us develop our developmental capacity through the school of hard knocks. Like, you know, life presses on us and we develop some new stuff. And so I don't think you have to have everything squarely in place. And also, I do think that there's a really important skill set to just be aware so that you sort of know what, where you're headed and can line yourself up in that way. And I think this is not special for polyamory. By the way, this is also stuff that I talk to people in any kind of relational situation about these skills. And they are first to be able to figure out what you think and feel and prefer separate from what anybody else might want you to think or feel or prefer, right? And then the next one is to be able to share that with somebody else, even if you think that they're going to not like what you have to say and they're going to be very uncomfortable to still cough it up and have the conversation. And the third is to be able to hear when somebody else says something to you that's very hard for you to hear. And then, of course, the skill that underlies all three of those is being able to get really grounded in yourself and manage your emotional automatic responses so that you're not just constantly in a state of panic, which would make it impossible to do any of those three things. And all of that whole package, I would define as differentiation of self. Yeah. And I think everything you described there also applies when we're thinking about, say, talking about sexual fantasies with a partner. You know, it's going through that same set of steps and getting good with yourself first and 
opening up to a partner about that. And then also, you know, having the right skill set for listening when your partner shares things about themselves with you. So I think that's a great roadmap for kind of how you would start and begin this process. Now, a related question, and this is one that I get all the time from people, which is, how do you bring up the idea of non-monogamy to a partner that you've only been monogamous with in the past? And I know you, you just talked about how important it is to share that, but do you have any concrete suggestions or ideas for how you might get that conversation started? Because a lot of people just don't know the right words to say. And I know there aren't, you know, one, one set of right words that everyone can use, but can you share any ideas there about how to start that conversation? Yes. I mean, one way to do it would be to hand them my book and say, let's read this chapter <laughs> by chapter, my darling, and discuss, you know, um, or any other book about non-monogamies to just get a high level meta conversation going on that's not about decision making. And I think that's sort of the key to keep things at the level where curiosity is easy. Exploration is freely given because there isn't a lot of decision making pressure. I think where people get into trouble is when they want to say, my darling, I want to talk about opening our relationship because I just had sex with my coworker last weekend. I want to continue this relationship, even though there are tears streaming down your face right now. And I want you to sign on for this now. And that's a no-go kind of strategy for how to bring up a difficult topic because there's just way too much pressure and confusion and complexity on that situation. So I would say before you open your relationship, have some meta conversations about what it might even mean and see where the blocks are, who's curious about it, what are you curious about, what's intriguing about it, what's scary about it, what do you want from your relationship regardless of what shape the relationship takes. You know, the things I long for in a relationship are this, this, and this. And in my imaginary world, that goes with monogamy, but really? What if it didn't have to be monogamy to get those things? Would you still be interested in those same things? Hell yeah, right? So I think, you know, unless I start feeling like I'm being pressured into something that I might not want to do. So that's the core. If you're going to hold steady in a tough conversation, you have to be able to keep one foot in your reality while you lean out and also kind of explore with some curiosity what your partner is expressing to you, you also have to know ultimately when it comes down to decision making, I'm going to make my decision for myself, even if there are some losses involved. Mm -hmm. And I think too, as part of this conversation, you also have to kind of get on the same page about, you know, what is polyamory or being in open relationship? What do those things mean? You know, and different people will have different ideas. And so if you start having this conversation about opening up your relationship, you might have a vision for it that is completely different from your partner's vision. And maybe the vision your partner has feels very threatening to them. But if they knew how you were thinking about it, maybe they'd be more on board with that idea. So I think it's really important to make sure that you're on the same page about you know what it is and isn't that you're actually talking about. But let's say you start that conversation and you're both kind of into the idea. You're curious about it. So what's the next step? You know, what are the, you know, specific conversations you need to have before you actually go out into the field and start dating or having sex with other people or having threesomes or whatever it is that your open relationship might look like? What are some of the, the key considerations there to talk about? Well, I think an early one we sort of touched on a minute ago, but I don't want to skip over it too fast, is what do you want in a relationship? Separate, like what are the qualities of a relationship that make it satisfying for you? So that as you explore what the shape is going to take, you are in touch with what the ultimate goal is in terms of a feeling experience or a connected experience that is satisfying to you. And so I wouldn't abandon that question too soon. I, I think that's a very important foundational question. And I always separate the question of relationship qualities from relationship shapes, because yeah. we just have a load of assumptions that are false about what shape a relationship has to be in order for it to feel secure, for instance. Like, the, what if it could be secure and be something that's somewhere on the spectrum of open? How would that be? So really exploring that territory, I think, is very important. And then, I, you know, in my book, I have a 
big old handout. There's like 25 handouts in this book, but one of them is a, about discussion topics for people to consider when they're opening their relationship. And, and honestly, most of them are things that I think that people in any relationship should probably have conversations about. And what does fidelity mean to you is really at the top of the list for opening up. You know, at what point do you start to feel not securely attached at what, what's cheating? What's fidelity? When we do it right, what does it look like? And then I get that nice, secure feeling. So that's a good, important, nuanced conversation to sort of parse out a lot of little parts. Like it might be fine to go do lots of different things with a new partner, but maybe not this one thing. Like this one thing's going to cut deep for a little while here. And somebody might be quite devoted to the idea of working on that deep feeling and improving in that area, but like no need to actually jab a fork right into it right out of the gate. So, you know, to sort of take things incrementally, if there's something on the list that would be pretty easy or manageable, doable or neutral, start there and then ease your way into it because relationships are complex and this might be the school of hard knocks. You're going to learn some stuff about yourself. You're going to learn some stuff about your partner that you didn't know before. And that's just relationships and life when you try something new that's a little bit of a stretch. So you want to make sure that you've got some ease around that and a collaborative feeling for running an experiment, taking a look at how it actually went, revising the experiment, running a new experiment, as opposed to we're going to open the relationship and this is what it's going to look like and plop. Now we're going to try to fit ourselves into this construct. That's not a way to do monogamy either, you know. Yeah, so you sort of have to be an amateur relationship scientist and explore and experiment with different things and figure out what works for you. And I love what you said about, you know, thinking about this question of what do you want to feel and what don't you want to feel? You know, that's a totally different way of having conversations about relationships that I think can be so much more revealing because once you have that on the table, you can start to build your rule set around that and define your boundaries and limits and expectations and all of this other stuff. So I think that is a really great starting point for the discussion. And also, of course, as part of the discussion, if you're going to be sexually involved with multiple partners at the same time, it's important to consider precautions for your sexual health. So what are you going to do to protect your own health and the health of the partners that you're involved with? So that necessitates conversations around condom use, contraceptive use, prep for HIV prevention, the HPV vaccine, dental dams, like there's all kinds of tools out there for safer sex. And it's going out and exploring what the options are, what you need to protect yourself and your partners and make safety a, a priority. And that also involves, of course, having an STI testing routine and having disclosure policies in place, you know, in case one partner tests positive so that you know, that information is shared so that everyone can get tested and treated if they need to be. So have some conversation around sexual health in the context of all of this too. Absolutely. Emotional health and sexual health. You know, it's interesting because I don't usually jump right into the sexual health aspect mm -hmm. right away, which is funny because I used to practice gynecology. Like it's not like I have an aversion to the conversation, but the Interesting thing that I notice as a therapist is that there are some rules that people make in their polyamory agreements that are just seem to be made to be broken <laughs> and use a condom as one of them. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it seems like that should be the rule that's the easiest one to keep, but it seems to be made to be broken. And I've given some thought to why that is. And so usually I talk to people about how to make a strong agreement before we get to the sexual health conversation yeah. so that they're in a place of alignment and are clear on how to make an agreement before they go make an agreement that the very next thing that's going to happen is they're going to get in a possibly alcohol and certainly hormones soaked craze and break that agreement. So like people have to be pretty strong to keep that agreement. Yeah. And I want to talk much more about agreements in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sex and Psychology podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. Check out their Vitaflux supplements, which aim to enhance sexual health by increasing libido, sexual desire, and orgasm satisfaction in men and women alike. 
Phytoflex can also help to increase erection strength in men and vaginal lubrication in women. Permescent's other sexual wellness products include their signature delay spray, which can help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel that heightens sensitivity, and a line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. Permescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at permescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is sex and relationship therapist, Martha Calpe. So we were just talking about agreements in open relationships and, you know, the importance of having a clear agreement with your partner and the ingredients that are involved in that. And one of the things you were talking about is that agreements are sometimes broken. And, you know, I have a thought on this too, which you were kind of hinting at where, you know, sometimes when people make an agreement, the situation, the circumstance is very different from when they're actually involved with another person, right? Where they might have consumed some alcohol, they might be really horny, right? So when you're making an agreement with your partner, you're often in this sort of calm, cool, collected state. But then when you're actually like trying to enforce the rules, you're in this state of sexual arousal. And we know that sexual arousal changes people's sexual decisions that they make, and they often make riskier decisions than they otherwise would. And this is something I explored a few episodes ago in my podcast with Shana Sparling, who does a lot of research looking at how does sexual arousal impact sexual decision making. And, you know, it's just something that it's hard for us to take into account. You know, when you're making an agreement, how is my mindset? How are all these other things going to change in that future situation where I have to stick to these rules? So tell us a little bit more about the advice that you give people about how to make a relationship agreement that works for them and something that, you know, ideally they can stick to. Yeah, I will. I want to add one more piece of nuance to what makes it hard to keep an agreement though. There's also a culture change that happens between this relationship with you and that relationship with somebody else. So when I'm with you, we're in a sort of mutually reinforcing situation where we're co-creating something. And then I switch and I do that with somebody else. And the realities don't always match. And if somebody's a little conflict avoidant or a little bit of a people pleaser, it can be a very big difference because you cannot please all the people all the time. So that's, again, we're back to the core, right? Like it has to be quite clear to you what you're agreeing to and why you're agreeing to it that's important to you in alignment with your values and the person that you want to be in all the relationships, right? So people who take their external read as their primary guidance are going to run into troubles with agreements. That makes a lot of sense. So what can we do to make better agreements? What are the kinds of things that maybe should go into agreement or shouldn't or that you just kind of really need to discuss at a fine level of detail. Yeah. Well, I think that the building blocks for a good agreement are the that my little differentiation list. Mm-hmm. Getting in touch with your center, figuring out what you want, think, feel, prefer. Sometimes that's very hard. A lot of people have trouble with that. And then saying it, a lot of people have trouble with that and hearing it. And then sort of keeping the emotional reactions either under control or taking enough breaks so that things are manageable and you can actually use your brain and your empathy and your connection in an effective relational way. So that's the that's the building block. I think if people have that stuff in order, they probably are making good agreements or they're renegotiating their agreement before they break it, mm-hmm. which you know, that for one thing, that's a rule that I have about agreements. Like they're not forever. (laughs) It's, it's not a cage that you walk into and then you lock it and then you throw away the key. You actually can renegotiate those agreements, but it'd be better to renegotiate them before you break them. And then to understand kind of on a larger level, why this is important. And it boils down to safety, physical safety, but emotional safety. And that question that therapists always have about You know, is being in an open relationship a sign of some sort of an attachment wound or something like like there's some damage done or people can't commit or can't attach or there's none of that. Uh, But 
if you're if you're going to craft a relationship that has really any partner, (laughs) but certainly multiple partners, and you want it to work, everybody is going to have to actually feel securely connected. And so we're not looking at a lesser relationship form where everybody loses. We're looking at a relationship form where everybody feels really secure. That's when it works. So to bring this full circle, nobody feels secure when they think that their partner is about to break an agreement. So once you break an agreement, you've just made your job way harder. What would be much better is to right out of the gate understand just how important it is to only agree to something that you're going to stand by. It's much better to have just a torturously difficult conversation where you say, I'm not ready to agree to that than it is for you to say, oh, I'm pretty sure I can do that for you, my darling. This time, even though I've never done it before, somehow magically it's going to go different because I'd like to avoid the hard conversation and then go break the agreement. And now you have a super complicated project involving a repair, which is not so easily accomplished. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I just have so many thoughts that are coming to mind based on what you're saying. And one is that you know, there are a lot of people who really want to explore open relationships or, or polyamory, some type of consensual non-monogamy. And so they might be willing to agree to almost any rule that their partner puts up just because that's something they really want to do. And I think that's another complicating factor is that sometimes people will just say what they think they need to say so they can transition the relationship thinking that they're going to be able to renegotiate the rules later. And, you know, that's sort of a bait and switch and often a recipe for more problems arising down the road. Something else I'm also thinking about is, is it better to have a lot of rules or (laughs) that are like very clear and specific or just have, you know, a smaller set of guidelines for what to do? Because I can imagine that the more rules you have, the more complicated it becomes to follow through and stick with all of that. And then also, you know, the other thing I'm thinking about is how when you're making your rule set or what are your guidelines or boundaries, it's not possible to anticipate every eventuality, every situation that's going to arise. Everybody that your partner might find to be attractive or want to start a relationship with or how deep their emotional bond with that other person will be. And so you kind of have to go in with this open mind, recognizing that We don't know everything going in and we're going to have to come back and revise and revisit this rule set periodically because we just kind of need to learn as we go along. Yeah, there's so much here, isn't there? I mean, it's you just put your finger on three enormous aspects. I think there's a distinction to be drawn between rules that are related to personal boundaries having to do with emotional safety versus rules that are intended to prevent uncomfortable feelings. So you can't legislate away feelings. So you could write like 50 rules and you're still going to have an uncomfortable feeling once in a while. So if that's your goal, is this is going to be easy and I'm just going to make rules until this all just fits super perfect and I'm not going to be stretching at all. I just don't think that's really a reasonable expectation to put on yourself. And I do think that by the time you've got a complicated legislative document, you probably are inviting some slippage. Even well-meaning slippage, just in like, I didn't remember, like the rule 57.C, you know, So when you're at that stage of things, you really have to watch out for that. But I do think this goes way back to the beginning of our conversation where I'd like to talk about what qualities you want in a relationship before talking about what shape it might take. So if the partners in question had that conversation, then they probably know what each other is seeking in terms of connection and what kinds of situations create connection and what kinds of situations create discomfort. That is going to help people actually guess right. So then if they're well-meaning and able to connect to their core, they can make a good guess. Like, this is probably going to be okay. 
this is somewhere on the line. I'm going to either risk it and discuss it immediately after, or I'm going to discuss it before I risk it, right? There's like a little calculus to be done there. Or I can see trouble coming here. Like if you have a feeling like my partner is going to be uncomfortable with this, why not discuss it first? And that's where I think sort of the hormone fog and decision-making around sexual interactions when you're horny is super relevant because people are likely to be like, well, I could plead insanity once. So why not now? You know, <laughs> probably he'll forgive me, right? Right. And, and well, speaking of that insanity, you know, it gets at this concept that is often discussed in the world of consensual non-monogamy, which is new relationship energy. And it's where you develop this really intense connection to another person that you've just met. And sometimes your judgment gets a little cloudy in the the heat of passion and you do things that you wouldn't normally do. And so, you know, that starting of a new relationship is often where there's a lot of, a lot more challenges because of, of the intensity of the emotions that everyone is feeling in that situation. And then, you know, sort of once that passion might subside or calm down to some degree, then it's going to become less of an issue. But it's that sort of early stage where I think you often see a lot of these problems kind of arise. Yeah, I love the direction this conversation is kind of weaving because, of course, when you open a relationship for the first time, the very first thing that's going to happen is a new relationship. And if it's a successful new relationship, it's going to have new relationship energy. And if it has new relationship energy, now you're in the most challenging circumstance. First thing in the first try. <laughs> so I think people often give up right. when that's hard. And what I notice is that's, that is hard. And it's hardest the first time each way. And one of the really sort of beautifully charming things about polyamory is role reversal is right around the corner, baby. So, you know, not everybody who's in a polyamorous relationship has two polyamorous partners, but if they do, if each partner is likely to have another relationship, there's going to be a role reversal. So the golden rule does apply, you know, like if <laughs> naughty behavior on your part will be rewarded soon. And I think, you know, that is actually part of my therapeutic perspective about that. Because figuring out a way to help somebody navigate their very intense and delighted and joyful and like just like so much light in that new relationship energy stage without engaging in a whole bunch of naughty behavior and breaking a bunch of agreements is a fine line to walk as a therapist. And it's a fine line to walk when you're actually doing it and getting good at it is pretty important to the success of your relationship. Like don't be breaking agreements is my main message yeah. about polyamory and success. Don't break your agreements. Just don't make the flipping agreement if you can't <laughs> keep it. But also what I'm hearing is if you can survive new relationship energy, you can survive anything. Practically. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. But I think that's so important to recognize, you know, the time course of, these relationships, you know, all of that's going to vary and the issues you're going to be dealing with are going to change depending on whether you're entering or exiting a new relationship. And so again, you just can't plan for all of this stuff in the beginning. So you do have to go in embracing a certain amount of uncertainty, recognizing that you can't predict every eventuality and, you know, just be comfortable sitting with some of that uncertainty, but also what you say, it's so important to try and make agreements that you realistically think that you can stick to. Now, you mentioned that condom use is one of the most common areas of these agreements that are broken. Are there any other areas that stand out to you in your work as a sex and relationship therapist where you find that there are often disagreements about certain rules and boundaries that people had established just so that we know the kinds of things to watch out for? Yeah, I, I have a section in my book called Rules That Are Made to Be Broken, where I list a whole bunch of them. And the ones that are coming to mind right now are the ones about safer sex. And also a classic is you can have sex with anybody except this one person. <laughs> <laughs> and it's usually the person you cheated on me with. Or the person who, I don't know what, whose ass is smaller than mine, like whatever it is, right? If there's like one person that's like in some sort of blackout zone, gosh, what could go wrong? You know, I think it's just another one of those situations where that's a rule that does get broken. 
and it's a painful. I mean, both of these are just really astonishingly painful. And they both fall into the category of you would think you could keep that one little agreement, you know, so what went wrong there? But I think it does kind of come down to judgments, hormones and horny, like, Mm -hmm. um, when you're in an altered state, you might not be making your best agreements. And so one piece of advice I have in situations like that, where one partner has strong feelings about safer sex, I mean, who doesn't, right? Or one partner has very strong feelings about a particular other person, and you're trying to make an agreement that you're going to keep, just for God's sake, don't add substances to the picture. Right. Because it's just going to become extremely complex. And and then you're going to have a whole a hairball of problems to unravel and you'll probably need some help to unravel them. Yeah. It's nice if you can keep your relationship errors in a zone of self-help, you know, wherever possible, which is partly why I wrote my book for a self-help audience too, because I think that people who are in polyamorous relationships have a real drive for emotional health and relational health. They tend to be relationship geeks. They're really interested in what makes a relationship click really well. They like relationships. They like people. They like intimacy. And they're like the perfect self-help audience, which is a good thing because it's not always easy to find a therapist who's super good at working with that demographic. Yeah. There's one other issue I wanted to discuss with respect to open relationships and polyamory, which is to say, okay, let's say you opened up your relationship with your partner. You came up with your rule set. You've given it a try. And one partner decides they don't want to do it anymore. Maybe, for example, they realize they're super jealous or maybe they're not having success finding other partners, but their primary partner is, or maybe they just find for whatever other reason, they don't like it and they want to go back to being monogamous. But the other partner says, I don't want to go back to monogamy because, you know, this is working for me. So do you have any advice on, you know, sort of how you might bridge that divide where if you open it and then one partner wants to close, but the other partner wants to stay open? That sounds pretty complex and challenging to me. It is. That's kind of one of the therapeutic challenges that therapists ask me about the most. What do I do when one partner wants to open up and the other doesn't, or they open up and one wants to go back? And I would call that an impasse the likes of which we see in therapy all the time. (laughs) So you're the perfect person to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, it's, it's an impasse. I liken this impasse to one where in a monogamous relationship, one partner wants their elderly parents to move in with them and be cared for in uh, unto death, you know, and the other one, not so much. And you know, there's similar decisions in that they affect everybody involved. It'd be really good to have a collaborative solution. The ship's going to sink if you can't work it out and emotions are running high. And, you know, that's not the same as like a dishwasher dilemma, like it needs to be loaded just so, or, you know, it's a pretty high stakes, intense collaboration kind of decision, but it's not super unique to polyamory, that there is this kind of an impasse. So the first thing I think that's important is to just back out a little bit and have a different discussion than are we opening up or aren't we opening up? I think the question should more be, what exactly happened that didn't work for you? And what happened that did work for you? And I have both of those questions for both partners Mm -hmm. so that we can start to break the gridlock a little bit. Because Most of the time when one partner goes to one pole and the other partner goes to the other pole and then they polarize, usually both of those aspects of the dilemma are actually held by both. You know, there's a part of me that thinks this was a good idea and there's a part of me that sees the ways that this didn't work. And then we project one of those onto our partner and then we start backing away and we kind of disown that entire viewpoint. And so I really want to get both viewpoints in both partners so that they can start to work together to solve the problems that arose in some kind of a way that can work for both of them. Yeah, that's great advice and a great perspective on this issue. So I know there were lots of challenges that might arise in consensually non-monogamous relationships that we didn't get into, you know, for example, managing jealousy and, and other issues. You know, we could talk for for hours on this, but 
let's say, you know, for people who are struggling, where can they go to find a therapist like you who knows what they're talking about, <laughs> you know, who has some certification or some training in this area and is equipped to treat people in open and polyamorous relationships? I know reading your book, yes, is a great place to go. But if people want to find help from a therapist, where do they go to find one who's competent? Yeah, that's a really good question. ASECT certified sex therapists have to have a certain amount of training in this domain, which doesn't necessarily assure competence. And you don't need a sex therapist to work with an open relationship structure. What I would say is think of what your top three screening questions are going to be and start calling around and listen to the responses. And when you feel something that feels good, give that a try. And if it stops feeling good because it's an uncomfortable process, maybe stick with it. And if it stops feeling good because you're feeling marginalized or like the therapist's viewpoint is overly simplistic, switch therapists. Or hand them my book. This book's got a ton of nuance. So if a therapist wanted to keep a client, they could definitely upskills that way for sure without having to take a big training from me. But I also do train therapists to do this. But there's not a certification process through me that's about this. And partly that has to do with my own biases about hoops and check boxes and how they confer safety without actually guaranteeing safety because the world is a nuanced place. So I would say just do some interviewing, be prepared to ask a few questions. How much experience do you have working with people in open relationships? What do you think are the building blocks for a healthy open relationship? Have you actually seen polyamory work in the wild? Have you seen some examples of workable polyamory? I think that that's a really important question because if you've never seen it work, it's a little harder to believe in it. Yep. I think that's all great advice. And, you know, yes, look for people's credentials and certifications and, you know, what they say on their website and so forth. That can give you a clue as to whether they've got some experience dealing with this. But I think your advice to, you know, interview a couple of different potential therapists is a really good one because you need to find somebody that is a right fit for you and also your partner if you're going in together for couples therapy because not every therapist is going to be the right fit for you. And you have to find somebody that you feel comfortable with, that you can open up to, and that you don't feel judged by. So I think that's all great advice. So thank you so much, Martha, for this amazing conversation. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about your work and get a copy of your new book titled Polyamory? Sure. My website is instituteforrelationalintimacy.com. It's kind of a mouthful. And you can buy my book from the publisher, Roman Littlefield. You can buy it from my local independent bookseller, A Room of One's Own, or you can buy it from Amazon. Links for all of the above are on my website. And there are at least three UK outlets as well. Again, links on my website under book. And the title again is Polyamory, a clinical toolkit for therapists and their clients. Thanks again, Martha, for being here. I appreciate your time. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Lee Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lee Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, to learn more about the science of sexual fantasy and desire and how to communicate about this with your partner. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.